great towards us. You've not held any of your greatness back. But they're not just great, but you're generous with all that you have. In fact, your word says you've held nothing back. If you gave up your own son for us, how will you not also together with him freely give us all things? Your word also says that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing that you have in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are blessed tonight in Christ. We are truly blessed and we're asking you tonight to continue to open the eyes, our eyes of our understanding to see the blessing that you have given to us. Father, your word instructs us that you have given to your church exactly what we need. You've given to us your word and you've given to us your spirit. And we're here tonight to open your word to get a greater understanding of your spirit whom you've given to us. And so to do that, we rely upon him as the teacher of the church to teach us and instruct us tonight. And we thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're getting into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that's what we started on a number of weeks ago. We've had some interruptions. And I was just going over the lesson. I'm teaching this is basically a course that I've taught a number of times in the school of ministry that we have before. But when you do it on a Wednesday night, you have to tailor it a little bit. But it's just become much more real to me because they're just, in my walk with God, I have begun, I began to ask questions. Sometimes, you know, we just need to ask some questions and then God gives you the answers. If you don't ask questions, you just kind of assume things. And began to say, Lord, you know, one of the things that began to bother me is a particular verse, and the verse didn't bother me, but the verse began to trigger a question in me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says, he said, you know, I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. And he could have. He was a very articulate, highly educated man. But I've come to you in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. I have two fellowship groups where I meet with local pastors. We become friends. We just kind of meet and share together. And I brought this up because I had to bring the teaching last time. And I brought this up and said, you know, where is the power? been asking myself, where is the power? And the power is not goosebumps and you leave church saying, wow, wasn't that great? That's good. Those are called goosebumps. <laughs> but where's the power? And he said, in the demonstration, that's something you can see. That's something tangible. In the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying, Lord, I, you know, I'm filled with the Spirit. I was filled with the Spirit some 30-some years ago. I speak in tongues. But where's the power? Where's the power in my life? Where's the power in the church? Where's the power? To, the, Charles Finney used to talk about the power to prevail with God and the power to prevail with man. Power, when you speak the word, that, 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 that people's lives are changed. I mean, he walked, would walk down the corridor of a train and, and a priest fell out on the floor behind him saying, my God, man, what do I have to do to be saved? He didn't say anything to him. There was a power in his life, and it came, of course, in large part from his walk with the Lord, but he had a, he had a, a, he had a relationship with the Holy Spirit and appreciation for him that I think we've lost, or lost touch with at least. And so the purpose of this is to call us back to that, make us more aware just through teaching of what the Scriptures say, who he is to the church. And we're going to see tonight, I believe, we're going to see a pattern in the book of Acts where they started out relying on him totally because they didn't know what else to do. And he was involved in everything they did. And as you get more and more towards the end of the book of Acts, you see him referred to fewer and fewer times because they began to figure out what to do. 
And the church now is so, we have so much knowledge of systems and programs and how to do things and we have all kinds of gimmicks and devices available to us from electronics to, to all kinds of things that we tend to not rely on Him. We tend to rely on all that other stuff and then kind of invite Him in at the end. But we do that in our lives too. And I've just become purpose to become more aware of Him and rely on Him during my daily life and I'm watching Him come through. I was just praying this morning and he began to bring back to my remembrance some situation that I was in about a month ago and I had something that just suddenly was not what I was expecting and all of a sudden he begins to give me answers and I've had it happen before. Uh, Under pressure, answers come. I was in a situation yesterday where some urgent situation came up and I had to talk to someone from the church on the phone and they were caught in the middle of a situation and I didn't know what to tell them but as I've learned to listen inside, the answer was there. And I've told you stories. It's not just because I'm a pastor. When I was a lawyer, it would happen in trials and situations where I would be in a court situation where the judge threw my case out and I said, Your Honor, you know, you told me yesterday I could try this case and today you're throwing it out. Can you give me a recess so I can figure out what to do? And he said, 10 minutes. I was hoping for 10 days. <laughs> and I got all kinds of people around me, lawyers trying to give advice. I said, Look, I, I, I can't even hear what you're saying. I walked down to the end of a bench and I sat there with my yellow legal pad and I said, God, I have no idea what to do. I know you brought this case to me. I have no idea what to do. And I just listened inside and a question came to me. And I wrote the question down and I wrote the name of the person I knew I needed to ask. I went back in. I called him to the witness stand. This will make a long story short. That one question unearthed a scheme that was being hidden from the judge. I had no idea what was going on. It entirely turned the case around for my client. That's the Holy Spirit inside of me. It wasn't because I was standing in a pulpit. It was out in everyday life. And see, the gifts of the Spirit are not primarily for in the church. They're for primarily out in the world to be a demonstration of the power and the reality of God. And so... This is what we need, but the place you're going to learn to develop that is in your own walk with Him. So we're learning who He is. We went through a whole bunch of names that the Bible tells us He's referred to by. We went through a bunch of His, uh, uh, his role and where He fits in the Trinity. And then we began to look last time at His ministry in the Old Testament. And the main idea for looking at that is to understand that although He was involved in creation during the Old Testament, that was not His time of ministry. He would come upon men like Samson. He would come upon people to do mighty acts. And then he would just he would go back into heaven and the reason we know that is what we're going to look at tonight is when the right time came he came here and stayed and he's still here ministering so we're going to look at him tonight and we, we kind of began that last time but we're going to pick up tonight and we're going to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit during the New Testament and the first part of this is his ministry in the life of Christ And this is important to understand because most of us that were raised in some kind of traditional church, I was not taught this. I was taught that Jesus came to earth as the second person of the Godhead. He's the Son of God. And of course, all the miracles He did, He did because He was God's Son. He had God's power. And and, and it was only to demonstrate and prove He was the Son of God because it wasn't for today. Because when He was raised... oh, Oh, by the way, He left some of it with the first apostles so they could establish the church. But once the Word of God was given, they didn't need any of that anymore. 
Well, there's some people I know that's too late to tell them because it's still operating through them today. And so, so what we're going to learn at is that's what religion taught me and maybe some of you, but it's not what the Bible says. And it's a very important difference to understand because it affects the confidence and the power of the church to complete the mission that we've been given. And that's what we're going to look, begin to look at tonight. So to do that, we've got to go back and look, and some of this is very basic stuff to some of you. Some of it may be new for, for, for some of you. But Christ, first of all, understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. I'm going to let that sink into some of you. Jesus Christ, my name's John Pfeffer. Pfeffer's my last name. Christ is not his last name, it's his title. And it actually comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. It means the anointed one. So he's the anointed one that was always expected, that was always looked for. And he has always existed. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. That means the full expression. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2 says, And he was with God. So we know the Word is a he, it's a person, and he was with God. And then verse, verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But what happened was, when Gabriel appeared to Mary, and says, you're the chosen one to bear God's son, he says, the Holy Spirit will come. She says, how can this be? Because I've never known a man. And he says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, literally come upon you and conceive in you the Son of God. So Mary is the flesh, is the human side of him, and the Holy Spirit conceived in her womb God's seed in her. And so that's why when he was born, he was both God and man. The God part of him came from the Holy Spirit. And the human side of him came from Mary. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to spend a lot of time on this. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. And he, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, in, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all that in all things he might have preeminence. So he always existed, but he took on, the one that always existed, took on flesh and began to live among us. Now that's important for what we're going to learn today. Now, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Back to the left, one, one book. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, or this attitude. He's talking about humility here. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That's kind of a backward way of saying it. He was equal with God. In other words, in order to rob somebody of something, it can't be yours. 
I, I can't go into our safety deposit box and rob myself because it was mine or ours. I can't go into my wallet and steal $20 from myself because it's my $20. All right? My kids could do it, but I can't. You can't steal from yourself. So what this is saying is being in the form of God, it was not considered robbery to be equal with God. So he had every right to be considered equal with God because he was God. That's what this is saying. All right, verse 6, verse 7. But he made himself, notice he did this to himself, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. So he took his reputation as the second person of the Godhead and set it aside. Because when he comes to walk on the earth, although he's king of kings and lord of lords, he doesn't walk around with a crown of crowns and a robe of robes. He walks around with the robe of a carpenter. He walks around with plain ordinary sandals, born in a plain ordinary community, born actually in a manger in the most humble of circumstances. Even though he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he took all of his reputation he was entitled to and he set it aside and took on the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of man. He took on humanity and flesh. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now in verse 7, where it says, back, go back to verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. Literally, what that says in the original language is he emptied himself. It's the Greek word kenosis, which means an emptying out of something. So if I come home and I want to make sure I don't leave something in my pockets. Oh, I got a mint there. That's good. I, I emptied out whatever was in there. That's what that word means. So he took all of the attributes that he had, all the glory, all the majesty, all the beauty, all the power, all the universe we just read was created by him and through him. The Father's will was to create, but the Son was the one responsible for the creation. And he laid all that power aside. He emptied himself of it. He laid all of that glory aside. He emptied himself of it. And, be, and took all, he was still God, but he emptied himself of all the privileges and all the power. This is, see, well, I wasn't taught that in church where I grew up. I was taught... He, and if you look at the, the, the old paintings of the Renaissance, what you see is what? You see a little baby with what? A halo around his head? And then he's growing up, a little halo around his head? Well, he didn't have a little halo around his head. Because although they knew Jesus was a good boy, they didn't know there was something special about him. And I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes the proof of that. Because all the while growing up, he didn't do any great miracles. He didn't suddenly sneeze and the water turned into wine. He didn't, you know, he didn't at, at the age of five lay hands on people and, and they were healed. And at the age of 10, he was raising the dead. At the age of 15, he was casting out demons. He didn't do any of that. And I'll show you that in a minute. 
But the other thing about this is when we come to the end of his public ministry, and he's had his last conference with his disciples in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he goes and begins a prayer in John chapter 17, and he starts out praying for himself, and he says, Father, restore to me again the glory that I had with you before. Well, you can't restore something that you're still carrying around. I can't say to you, this watch I wear, Jerry, would you please restore it to me? Why? Because I, I still have it. So you restore something that was stored originally. That you had. So the fact that he had to ask it for be returned to him means he had set it aside. That's in John chapter 17. Also, when he comes to... Um, there's a place where he comes to... Uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. So the Holy Spirit was the agent through whom Christ entered the earth. I just quoted this to you, but in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to, this, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. He's the agent of God that conceived life in her womb. In Luke chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit, explaining how this is going to happen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That literally means will come up into you, come upon you, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Before he began his earthly ministry, Jesus functioned as just a man. He had to grow up and be prepared for ministry. In Luke chapter 2, it's a story of where Jesus' family bring him, because he's of age now. They bring him for the high festival into Jerusalem. And then when the festival's over, they leave, and they're three days on the road home, and one of them looks around and finds, where, where's Jesus? We've kind of lost him. That may be hard for you to understand, but they traveled in caravans. And they all knew each other because they were all from the same town. So he could have been sleeping with, you know, he could have been visiting, you know, the Smith family and the, you know, it wouldn't have been Gonzalez, but, you know, some other family. And suddenly, wait, wait, we haven't seen him for a while. And so Mary and Joseph head back to Jerusalem and they find him where? They find him in the temple. He's 12 years old. They find him sitting, conversing with the scribes and the Pharisees, with the learned men. And he's learning things from them and he's, he's conversing back and forth with them. And they get upset and say, what have you done? They're just like any parent, you know, why have you done this to me? And he says, don't you understand I'd be about my father's business? And in two verses later it says, you know, he grew in wisdom and understanding. He grew in strength and favor with God and man. So if you're growing in something, that means you increase in it, which means you don't start out with all of it at first, you're growing in it. Hopefully, you're growing in understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Hopefully, we're growing in our relationship with God, which means we've made progress from where we were before. Well, if He's growing in this, that means He didn't automatically have all of this. In fact, my personal belief is that the way He discovered who He was was by reading the Scriptures. And he'd read something, because he didn't have the New Testament, of course. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and it says, where the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and somehow it would go off in him. The me would go off in him. And he was discovering who he was by reading that, and the Spirit of God 
the, the God in him was showing him. And isn't that how we discover who we are? By reading the scriptures and having something, you know, ooh, wow, that just went off in me. That's God showing you. That's just who you are. Of course, if you don't read them, if you're just on Facebook to find out who you are, but if you're in God's Word, He can show you who you are. This is the only mirror that can change you into what it says. Every other mirror just reflects back to you what you put in front of it. So he was growing in these things. All right, now we come to the place where his public ministry begins. We also see in Mark chapter 6, which is a time where Jesus is, is already in his public ministry, and he, and he goes to his own town. He's been in Capernaum and some of the other cities, and he's performing miracles. And he comes to his own hometown, and it says he could perform no mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. And one of the parts of it, he says, because they looked at him and says, isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph? And aren't his brothers and sisters still with us? And I thought, we knew the kid growing up. This is Jesus. Good boy. Never got in trouble. Always knew his lessons in synagogue. But it's Jesus. It's Mary. We saw the kid grow up. That's why he said a prophet's not without honor, except in his own hometown. So if he had been performing miracles, if he had a halo around his head, if, if he was walking in all that glory, they wouldn't have been shocked at age 30 that he was now doing these things. Everybody with me so far? All right, okay. So before his earthly ministry, he just functioned as a regular man. Good one. John chapter 2 is the story where Jesus turns water into wine. And it says at the end of the story, it says, this was the first miracle that he performed. And he was 30 years of age. So it just says it right outward. Luke 3.23 says, He began his ministry. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposed to be the son of Joseph, and that goes on in his heritage. And this follows his baptism in the Holy Spirit. So for the first 30 years of his life, Jesus functioned as an obe obedient, bright man whose trade was that of a carpenter. But let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Some of you, this is basic information, you know it. Some of you, it may be new. And many of us, we just need to be reminded of this. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. This is John the Baptist who is obviously baptizing people. He baptized people under, uh, under the law, under an old rite or practice and the purpose of this baptism was to signify the washing away of your sins. Not forever, but the cleaning up of you. Just like a bath gets rid of the dirt from yesterday, that's what this represented. It was not a remission of sins. It was a cleansing from what you'd gotten into, the trouble you'd gotten into from the last time that you'd been baptized. Okay. And Jesus comes to Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit me, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is required by the law. We're going to obey the law. And then John allowed him. Verse 16, And when he had been baptized, 
Jesus came up out of the water, immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. Let me just stop and correct something here. This does not say the Spirit of God was a dove. It says he descended like a dove. In other words, he doesn't come plummeting down. He came down gently like this and came upon him, alighting upon him. Okay, now let's go to the next verse. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So here Jesus is baptized, and when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit now comes upon him. Just as he did on Samson, just as he did on the mighty people in the Old Testament, but he doesn't leave. He comes upon him, the heavens open and the Father speaks. This establishes the Trinity. You've got the Son being baptized, the Spirit coming upon him, and the Father speaking. By the way, we don't get the time to get into it tonight. If you go to Galatians chapter 4, you'll see that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a sign of your sonship. So if the Holy Spirit is in you, that's proof you are God's child and that He's pleased. Some of you can meditate on that for a while. Now, we don't have it up there, but chapter 4 then begins, Now Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We're not going to go why, but that's a little later on. We'll talk about that sometime. And then at the end of that, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So the point here is, His public ministry did not begin. This is very important. His public ministry did not begin until He was endued with power from on high. Because the whole point of this exercise we're going through is for you and me to see together that the power by which Jesus did every miracle, the power by which Jesus functioned supernaturally, the power by which Jesus knew things supernaturally was by the power of the Holy Spirit living in Him. And I'm going to give you a clue ahead of time. Because at the end of His ministry, He turns to His disciples and said, it's to your advantage that I go, because when I go, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send the same Spirit that's been in me is now going to be in you. Why? Because the church is now commissioned to finish what He started. With the same power, the same supernatural gifts, all that He operated by, He said, the works that I do, it can't be any clearly laid out than it is. Why does the church miss it? Why do we miss it? Well, we may get into that. All right. I got ahead of myself there. Chapter 4, verse 1 then goes on to say, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. John 3, 34 says, Jesus had the Spirit without measure. All before Him only had the Holy Spirit's help or anointing to do a limited task. And then in John, Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned after the temptation. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And the news about Him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And from this point on, the Holy Spirit is His source of power. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, 
there's a place where Jesus has cast out some demons. Remember the story? And the, and, the, and the Pharisees come to him and they start talking about him and they say, yeah, we know how he does this. I mean, because you, you, they, couldn't, they couldn't deal with the fact of not just who he said he was, but what he did. And they said, oh, he cast those out by the devil. He cast those out by Beelzebub, the devil. And Jesus turns to them and says to them, if I cast out demons by the devil then the devil is a kingdom divided against itself. And then he goes on to say, every sin that man commits can be forgiven, except the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. So Jesus equates their accusing him, the power by which he did the miracles. They're accusing that of being the devil's power. He calls that blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is acknowledging there, wait a minute, the power by which I do this is the Holy Spirit within me, and when you accuse that as being the devil, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So that's again proof that Jesus is acknowledging that these things have been done by the Holy Spirit in him. Okay, now let's go through three years of ministry just like that to John chapter 13. We're now at the end of his three years of ministry, where in the process, of course, he's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's healed every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find out this, which I wasn't taught in church when I grew up either. You'll find out, if you really go through and read the Gospels, you'll find out that the thing Jesus did more than anything else except teaching was to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead. He didn't just do it on a one or two occasions it was part of his life. Two verses in Matthew says this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 34 says, and he was going about. He was going about. He didn't go about. He was going about. It was his practice. He was going about on all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every manner of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread. Into, out of all Galilee, and they brought to him all the sick from Tyre and Sidon down there, and he healed them all. And back in chapter, then it goes through the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 9 begin, ends with the same, same story. And he went about teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, and healing every kind of sickness. And every, it was his practice wherever he went, because that's God's heart. Jesus didn't heal people to prove who he was. If he did it, he don't have to do it a few times. He did it because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me. He said, otherwise, don't you understand? Believe it's the Father in me that did the works. The Father healed those people because that's his character and that's his nature. Religion has tried to separate that out to tell us the God we serve doesn't care about us in this life. We're just supposed to bumble through and hope we survive. God only cares about the really important things when we get to head. Don't get me off on that one. We'll never get through this. All right. John chapter 13. Did you find it? Verse 33. Little children. Now he's preparing them. There's a big change is about to take place. He's about to leave them. Because what he's been sent here to do is about to end. But what he's doing, this is these verse, these chapters, 
John 13, 14, 15, and 16 are so important because this is his last instructions to his prime team, his closest staff, because he's about to leave them, and he's going to leave them in shock because he's going to be crucified in front of them and buried, and it's going to look to them as if it's over. So he's preparing them beforehand. He's already tried to prepare them that he didn't get it. And these are his instructions because the next time they see him, it's going to be very different because they're not going to be seeing him in the bodies in now. They're going to see him because he just appears in rooms, walks through walls, appears and disappears. And so he's giving them his final instructions and now he's going to tell them he's going away. John 13, verse 33. Little children, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and then he gives them a commandment. Now we'll go down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow me afterwards. Chapter 14. Let, your, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. That word literally is just a dwelling place. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now go down to verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You will know that I am in the Father. At that day, when I come back again, not the coming back we're waiting for, the coming back in three days. Because when he says, a little while you'll see me a little longer, that word in Greek is micron, from which we get micro, small. He's talking about a very short period of time. If it were a longer period of time, the word is aeon, which means an age. But this word means a few days. So he's not talking about when he comes back for the church. He's talking about when he's been raised from the dead and comes back to be among them. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's comforting them with. And here he says, look, verse 20, at that day you will know, what will you know? That I am in the Father, and you will know that you are in me, and I'm in you. Now that's a concept I've meditated on for a long time, on and off. I want to get that, how do I get that in my, how is it? that I can be in Him, and He can be in me. And then He goes on to say, and we're going to be in each other. Jerry, I love you, but when the service is over, you're going to your house and I'm going to my house. So I'm not living in your house and you're not living in my house. I love you, I'd love to see you, but there's, we, we are aware of our individual identities. The proof of it is there's a lot of blue cheers se separating you. We don't like to sit too close together. We like our space, right? We love each other, love seeing you, 
but I like my individuality, especially in New England, and, and, you, and you like, and I do too, okay? But the Bible says, Jesus is saying, I want to introduce you to a new concept, because of what I'm about to do, the unity that the Father and I have had, this oneness that we've had, we're not going to have with you. Later on, he says, if you ask the Father, he's going to answer, and, and we're going to come and make our abode, our dwelling place in you. Well, wait a minute. Other verses say the Father's still on the throne and Jesus is sitting at his right hand. How's that going to happen? Because there's a third part. How was the Father in Jesus? Remember, he came up out of the water. The Father's where? In heaven? And Jesus is wet, coming up out of the water. But he sent the Spirit to dwell in him. So the Holy what Jesus is talking about here is the unity of the Father and the Son that we're going to have with Him and the Father and each other is the same Spirit's going to live in all of us. And it's the same Spirit that lived in Him. Okay. Now go back up to verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray or ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. Powerful verse. I will pray the Father, and He will give you, not He might, He will give you another helper. There are two Greek words that are translated another. One of them is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. And there's the word alos, which means another that's exactly like the one that was there first of all. And this word is the latter, it's alos. So what Jesus is literally saying here, I'm going to ask the Father and He's going to give you a helper that's just like me. So Jesus is saying to them, whatever I've been to you, He's now going to be to you. Whatever I've done for you and among you, He's now going to do for you, but not among you. He's going to be in you. I'm going to ask the Father, and He will give you a replacement helper. The first session we did, I took that word helper, and I broke it down according to the amplified version to seven different attributes. Comforter, uh, advocate, standby, strengthener. That word literally in Greek is a word paraclete, not parakeet. That's a bird. It means somebody that's called alongside of you to provide whatever you need, whatever it is you need. This is so important to understand because we don't understand this. We may understand the doctrine up here, but the way we live our lives is if, oh my gosh, I don't know what we're going to do. We've got the helper living inside of us. Well, what's a helper do? He helps. If you need any help now, I have good news for you. If you're in Christ, the same helper that was in Him is in you the same. There's not two different Holy Spirits. There's not the full version Jesus got and the watered-down version we get because we're just little Christians. He's the power horse of the church. Okay. 
where Jesus was only temporarily among them, the Spirit will be in them forever. He goes on to say, it is to your advantage that I leave because he has been with you up until now, but now he's going to be in you. Because I'm sure they had trouble. You've heard me say this many times. I'm sure it didn't compute with them. Wait a minute, how, how can it be better for us for you to go? I mean, we can reach over and touch you. If we have any questions in the middle of the night, we can wake you up and say, Lord, what about this? And what about that? And when, when the Pharisees came at us, we just stood behind Jesus. He knew just what to say and just what to do. We got out in the storm. Remember, guys, we're in the storm. And he's asleep in the back of the boat, and we're sinking. We think we're going to die. We woke him up, and what did he do? He rebuked the storm, and it stopped. It listened to him. Then there's this business where he said to us, why didn't you guys do it? I didn't understand that. I mean, he spoke to storms. And remember the time Peter walked on the water with him? I mean, how comforting was that to have Jesus there with you? Wow. Took care of the problems. I mean, at one point, they didn't have money for the taxes, and April 15th is coming up. He says, well, let's go fishing, Peter. Throw out your hook, catch a fish. What's in his mouth? I mean, he solved all their problems for them. And now he's saying, I'm leaving you, and it's to your advantage that I'm going. I, I, that, that, I'm sure that didn't compute. But Jesus never lies. By the way, there's sometimes... God will put you in a situation for your advantage and you don't see how it's your advantage because it's very uncomfortable. This was not comforting for them. This did not make them feel warm and fuzzy, but ultimately it was better for them. Ultimately, it was better for them and ultimately for us. Okay. John 16. I've probably already quoted this, but that's okay. Yeah. Verse 7. Because verse right before that, he says, Because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, then the Helper will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, He, listen to this carefully, He, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Amen. You open your Bible in the morning, ask Him to guide you into truth that you need that day. Because He knows what you're going to need that day. Ask Him for the truth that you need that day. To open your eyes to see what it is that you need that day. He'll answer you if you ask Him and expect it. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will tell you, wouldn't that be no? Things to come. Not the lottery number tomorrow. But He'll tell you what you need to know that's going to come. And He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and declare to you. Just think about that. All the secrets, the mysteries, He'll declare them to you. Most of the insights that I teach you, I didn't get by reading a book other than this one. I got by asking Him. I don't understand that. Show me. Give me insight and understanding. 
And you, he's not, I'm not somebody special. He'll do it for you. I just ask and expect. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said to you, he'll take of mine and declare it to you. Verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. A little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. So he's talking about being raised from the dead. Okay. So he's telling them the Spirit's going to be their guide now instead of him. Because it is the same Spirit, let's go to chapter 14 now, verse 10. Because it's the same Spirit that did it in him that's now going to be in them, Look at this. Do not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Most assuredly I say to you. So he's talked about the works that I've done is because the Father does them in me. Now how does the Father do them in him? Because the Father is seated on the throne. The Father does them in him through the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the same Spirit that God used to form the universe. So the same power that hovered over the earth in Genesis chapter 1 is the same Spirit that's in Christ, the Spirit of God the Father, who now, Jesus is saying, is now going to be in you. So verse 12, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do will he do also. And greater works shall you do because I go to my Father. I've heard so many teachers try to explain that away. What he's talking about is reaching more souls. And I believe that. But what did Jesus do? What, was the, what did most of the works he did? They were miracles. Opening blind eyes, healing the lame, preaching the gospel. People get humble. Well, what are the greater works? Well, when we're doing the works for a while, we can look at the greater works. But I don't see the church, well, not in some places where it's happening, I don't see the church in the United States, by and large, doing the works. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Because the world needs to see the works. The world needs to see the works. I keep being told by the young generation that, that's, that there's a trend now of leaving churches and just going to house churches because they want to see something authentic. And so that's why some churches have all the bells and lights and whistles, and we have, but not for that reason. And all I can think of is, what's more authentic than the power of God? What's more authentic than seeing blind eyes open? What's more authentic than the actual tangible presence of God? What's more authentic than that? And that brings them to Him. Not fat, infatuated with lasers and all the smoke and all the glitter and all that stuff. Because you get used to that, so you have to have more. You've got to have more of the Holy Spirit. And that's good. You can get addicted to Him. That's okay. Okay. Look at this. Most assuredly I say to you, he, verse 12, he who, he who believes in me, the works that I do, most assuredly I say to you, see, don't read this too quickly, he who believes in me. Notice what it does not say. Most assuredly I say to you that you disciples. Notice it does not say 
Most assuredly, I say to you that you apostles, Peter, James, John. No, he says, he who believes in me. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Then he's talking to you. He's talking to me. You see what religion's done? What religion does is they can't explain the fact that they don't see the miracles, so what we have to do is water down the word to justify why we're not seeing them. That's dangerous stuff to do. Instead of saying, this is what the word says, I don't see it, but we got to find out why we don't see it, because that's what the word says we should expect. And notice it doesn't say, most assuredly I say to you, the pastors and the prophets and the evangelists will do the work that I do. No, it's he who believes in me. And it's not in red up there, but it's in red in my Bible, which means Jesus said it. Now, either he tells the truth or he doesn't. If he's telling the truth, then he's expecting us to do the works that he did. And the reason we're not is because we don't really understand and believe that the same spirit that was in him is in us. Because we're trying to, we look at us, oh, I, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. That's right, you can't. He never told you to do it. He said, because I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send this. He said, the Father, Jesus didn't do them either. It was the Father in Him that did it. And if the same Spirit's in you and me, the same Father that did those works is in us to do those same works. What we're going to look at next time is this transition into the church. Because at this point, Jesus is preparing to end his public ministry, his ministry, his earthly ministry. No, he's, he's, he's going to end his phase of his earthly ministry. And he's preparing them to transition to the body of Christ, the rest, the fulfillment of the ministry that he began. Because we'll begin next time in Acts where it says all the things that Jesus... Because I, I, Acts is written by Luke. And he starts out by saying the things that Jesus began to do, I've told you already. Well, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been dead and raised from the dead. So he's talking about if he began to do something, that implies it's not finished yet. And the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit taking the charge in the body of Christ. He worked in the head in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now he begins in Acts. He works through the body of Christ, which is you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the work that you've done in our lives. We ask you to be given us a new awareness of exactly who it is that lives in us. Help us to become sensitive, to turn inside and to listen to his direction. Fill us with his boldness in the situations in which you want to place us in, that we may be effective witnesses of you, that he may be the witness in us.
of you. And Father, the grace to do that, we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.